Special friends, that Nigu and that melody is the Inenu to Rena. Um, our, our, our eyes one day will see, and it's a question for us. What do our eyes hope to see one day? What is it uh, that we long to one day see? Um, friends, I want to share the, um, the, the sad news that one of our regulars here from the last few years has passed away. Um, Rabbi Barry Dove Lerner who was joining our sessions here for years, uh, these Tuesdays, these Tuesday classes. Um, I just uh, learned passed away and I shared a nice tribute with his family of what it meant for him to be with us in this learning space. I didn't know him much beyond this, uh, this learning space, but I got a sense of his humility and his wit and his um, intellectual intrigue and and uh, was able to share that with the family. So if you knew him or had any experience with him in the sessions and you wanna feel free to write a little tribute in the chat, feel free to do so. But today we'll dedicate our learning to him because um, he was uh, very much a regular here with us. So um, wonderful friends, before we jump into Jeremy Bentham today and in session 18 of the early 19th century, I want to start with a poll, as usual, to get our, our uh, personal thoughts flowing together. Is happiness the goal of life? Option one, yes, there's nothing more morally important than happiness, mine and others. Option two, no, happiness is overrated, a terrible measure of a successful life. Option three, happiness is important, but certainly not a top priority. Okay, 13% say, yes, there's nothing more morally important than happiness, mine and other people's. 13% say, no, happiness is overrated, a terrible measure of a successful life. And 75%, happiness is important, but certainly a top priority. Okay, let's see where Jeremy Bentham comes in on this. And hopefully in the conversation, you'll feel free to continue to weigh in on that as that, um, um, however that resonates for you. So friends, is happiness the most important thing in life? What should be our measure of success on our work to heal the world? Are we just as responsible for people on the other side of the world as we are to our own children? The English thinker Jeremy Bentham arrived at what he believed to be an overarching answer to most questions of morality. As the father of utilitarianism, an idea so profound to him 
that it caused him to leave a promising career in law to pursue his philosophical work. Utilitarianism is a philosophy in which an action is right if it tends to promote happiness or pleasure and wrong if it tends to produce unhappiness or pain, not just for the performer of the action, but also for everyone else affected by it. That is to say that utilitarians seek to maximize happiness for the greatest number of people. According to Bentham, human behavior is motivated by the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. That's what drives people to do what they do. Every choice of what we eat and what we spend our time doing and is our, according to Bentham, our desire for pleasure and avoiding pain. This is the primary criterion for deciding moral issues, the utility of a pursuit to generate happiness and reduce suffering. Bentham begins chapter one of his work, Principles of Morals and Legislation, by writing, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. They alone point, point out what we ought to do and determine what we shall do. The standard of right and wrong and the chain of causes and effects are both fastened to their throne. They govern us in all we do, all we say, all we think. Now, in addition to thinking about whether you think he's intellectually right, think for a moment also of whether you think he's personally right. Think about the, the of three, three things you feel motivated to do today and ask yourself why you feel motivated to do them. And, you know, are they, according to Kant, as we talked about, motivated by duty? Or is it ultimately really, don't, you know, uh, motivated by pain and pleasure, as Bentham would argue? This rests on what philosophers would call a hedonistic approach. Now, um, um, today in 21st century America, being a hedon or engaged in hedonistic activity is, a, is an accusation. That's a negative thing. But he means something positive here, right? His hedonistic approach, not hedonism referring to an amoral selfishness, but simply that pleasure is the measure of accounting for goodness in the world, right? In this respect, hedonism is rooted in equality. No one... No one person's pleasure is more valuable than another's. The pleasure of a, of a philosopher taking joy in lofty discourse is not privileged over that of someone in poverty finding pleasure in a satisfying meal. The goal is pleasure, however people find it. With the egalitarian nature of utilitarianism, it follows that while it would be best to make everyone happy, when not possible, it's preferable to make the many happy rather than just the few. One of the main benefits to such a system is its simplicity. Instead of needing to make complex moral decisions based on a mastery of a particular religious tradition or expertise in moral philosophy, we can simply think of how to bring the most pleasure to the most people. This can enable us to avoid confusion in morality which often leads to us giving up and accepting injustices. Bentham's system, on the other hand, equips everyone, including the government, to make moral calculations that generally benefit the masses. And so, in addition to being pro-equality, utilitarianism is pro-democracy, allowing people to hold legislators accountable to the overall public and not simply to a small group of elites. One word that summarizes the ideas at play here is consequentialism. 
Bentham cares not about the intentions behind a person's actions, but the consequences. Whether a person means well is irrelevant if the consequence themselves, if the consequences themselves bring about greater suffering. So what should a Jew make of utilitarianism? Well, at its most basic level, it sounds like a great idea. What is tikkun olam if not a, an, an attempt to repair the world on a macro scale? Why would we not want to do the most good for the most people? We, of course, by and large, want people to be happier and suffer less. However, there are important ways in which Judaism rejects a utilitarian ethic. For example, there's the Jewish value that every human has infinite dignity. Each life is an entire universe. Therefore, we cannot hold as a rule that two lives are more valuable than one life. Infinity plus infinity still equals infinity. Further, there are religious and moral principles that prevent utilitarian calculations. For instance, the rabbis make clear that you cannot kill one innocent person to save two, assuming this is not an instance of self-defense. Take the famous trolley problem. Remember the trolley case? To review, a hypothetical trolley is heading down a track and bound to kill five people. You have the option to pull a lever to divert the trolley to a path on which it will run over and kill one person instead. Should you cause the trolley to kill one person in order to save five? For a utilitarian, the choice is not difficult at all. You send the trolley to kill the one. In Jewish morality, it's more complicated. In fact, a similar case is discussed by the Jerusalem Talmud. Here's what it says. It was stated, a group of people on the road were met by Gentiles, hostile, who were being hostile, who said to them, give us one of you that we may kill him. Otherwise, we shall kill all of you. Even if all of them are killed, they should not hand over a single person. From this, it appears that Jewish law would prohibit one from pulling the lever, thereby killing one person to act to save five. However, halachic authorities have debated this question without clear agreement. Yet rather than focusing exclusively on the consequences, they tend to analyze the act itself and explore whether the consequences are inherent to the act or can be seen as separate from it. Um, I hope that makes sense. So just to flesh that a little further, they seem pretty... Um, unanimous, that if you can actively kill one to save five, you cannot actively kill one to passively save five. However, the, le the, the legal maneuver they're making is saying, well, there is a distance between me changing tracks and the person being run over. It is not a direct consequence, such as me punching someone in the face or pushing someone off a bridge. I'm changing tracks but a few seconds later, the train hits the people. Yes, it's inevitable, but it's not a direct consequence of my physical action of hitting the button. And, and, and Jewish law is interested in that direct act. The essential difference between Bentham and Judaism is that he more or less viewed people as represented by totals of happiness, points like points in a game. In Judaism, we see that the root of a person goes deeper than the pleasures they accumulate. They are made in God's image and they should be treated as such. Bentham, by contrast, famously said, 
natural rights is simple nonsense. Natural and imprescriptible rights, rhetorical nonsense, nonsense upon stilts, right? So many of us might um, believe in human dignity, the notion that humans are innately valuable. They're not just valuable. It's their, their pleasure is not valuable. Um, it's not just that we care about someone's pleasure. We care about the person themselves. And because we care about them, we care about their pleasure. Bentham says, no, we don't care about the person. There's no, there's no innate dignity. We just, we're just animals and we have pleasure and, 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 and pain. And we should care about each other's pleasure and pain because we care about our own pleasure and pain. And that's what morality is, is, is kind of about. Also recall the way utilitarianism cares more about consequences than intention. This isn't foreign to Judaism either. We have the trope that Judaism is concerned primarily with actions. And yet we should understand that Judaism cares very much about intentionality. Yes, we want to do the right thing regardless of thoughts and beliefs. All things being equal, kavanah does matter, both religiously and ethically. For example, Jewish law does not treat intentional murder as the same as unintentional murder. An unintentional killing, even if both have the same consequences. We understand the mitigating factor to be real. The Torah specifies that one who killed another accidentally is not sentenced to death, but rather allowed to take refuge in special cities, the Are Miklat, designed for that purpose. It's a place of rescue, of refuge for those who accidentally kill. Someone who is driving their car carefully um, and accidentally you know, gets in an accident and kills someone is treated very differently than someone who breaks into a home with a gun, you know. Um, so utilitarianism and its focus on consequences does not always equal justice. So too, Maimonides posited that when giving tzedakah, when giving uh, um, charitably, is it better to give just one coin every day than to give a massive sum of money all at once? Excuse me, that was a statement, not a question. According to Maimonides, it's better to give one coin every day than give a, a large amount at once. Why is that? Because for him, it's not just about the practical consequences of the mitzvah, the greatest impact you can have charitably, but also about the effect the mitzvah has on the human soul. Still, these Jewish ideas are, not, are no excuse for not considering the impact of our actions. The Talmud famously asks, who is the one who is wise? And answers, the one who can foresee the consequences of their actions. That's a wise person, according to that one of those answers in Pirkei Avot. Excuse me. I, I mean, it does emerge in Pirkei Avot, but, but, but th that particular idea is in the um, tractative Tamid. It's not sufficient to think that one's actions are justified in an abstract sense, but one must also strive to think through their impact on themselves and others. When discussing gun control, a contemporary rabbi has argued that Jewish values dictate that our laws should be based on utilitarian consequentialism, backed by statistics, rather than more acutely focused on rules. He, here's how he argued. Rabbeinu Nisim, 14th century Spain, writes that when evaluating the prohibition of whether to sell weapons, we need to look at the total result. If more harm than good will result from the sale of weapons, then we should not sell the weapons. All right, so just to unpack that a little bit, the way that most Jews talk about gun control versus gun rights is they look at rules in the Talmud. They say, look, 
Jews are allowed to own weapons. They should have gun rights. Or they say, look, Jews put restrictions on selling guns. I'm not guns, but on uh, other forms of weapons, obviously. Um, and so they look at rules and historical precedents. According to a different approach based on this 14th century Spanish thinker, don't look at those historical precedents of rules. Look at the consequence today. If we loosen gun laws, is there more death or less death? If we make stricter gun laws, is there more death or less death? Make it a purely statistics-based rule rather than arguing based on the Constitution that you have the right to have guns or rather that voting on, um, you know, um, you know, some general assessment that guns are, you know, leading to more death and that stricter gun laws will do it. Be statistics-based. Um, and so that's a very different way of thinking about policy issues based on consequence rather than based on principle. So at its core, the dissonance between Bentham and Jewish thought is that utilitarianism relies unwaveringly on the idea that the end purpose of life is pleasure. As Jews, we see a plurality of goals, such as being of service to God and to people, improving one's character, fulfilling one's responsibilities, seeking meaning in life, and connecting to God by doing mitzvot. Personally, my notion of truth is not attached to ideas that give me or at least I try not to be attached to ideas that give me pleasure and reduce pain. I mean, that would be a very weak form of, of, of seeking truth, that we only embrace the truths that make us feel good. Um, but most of us seek meaning, and sometimes meaning hurts, right? Sometimes we seek meaning and we seek truth, even though we wish we could, have, we could attach ourselves to a conclusion that made us feel better. According to some utilitarians, it's best to spend one's efforts helping those with the greatest need even if they live far away from us. However, we do believe the world simply works better if we see ourselves as more responsible to our children than we are to a stranger and more responsible to a local community member than we are to someone across the world. In the philosophy of Bentham, Jeremy Bentham, we see goodness as a simple calculation. In Judaism, however, we know that the human soul goes so much deeper. Okay, friends, I'm gonna pause there. So um, we've opened up um, a whole bunch of um, ideas around the early stages of utilitarianism. As we're going to see in other thinkers, utilitarianism expands and adapts in new ways. Utilitarianism, as we see in 2023 America, is different than early 19th century Jeremy Bentham in many ways, but a lot of the principles remain intact. And so some of our conversation today is around intention versus consequences is around, um, is pleasure, our pleasure and pain primary as our moral goals? And many other things he raised. So as always, love clarification questions, love agreements or disagreements with uh, Bentham's ideas and any other directions you want to go. Yes. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, I'm so, uh, sorry about Rabbi Lerner. Um, it's very sad. Um, earlier this summer, I was in Japan. And the whole concept of happiness actually came up early on in uh, a discussion with um, our guide, because I said, being on a very nice tour and you know having a wonderful time, I said, this whole country seems devoted to happiness. And he said, there's no happiness here. They have sacrificed happiness for authoritarianism. I mean, it's more like they've given up their 
they've given up a certain amount of their pleasure. I mean, and then if you look closer, I mean, I could see as a tourist, I'm seeing it one way, obviously. But I thought it was very, he said he, he had lived there for several, he's Canadian and lived there for a while. And he said, I wouldn't live back here. I love, you know, touring around and helping people and taking people, but I wouldn't live here. It's extremely difficult life to live in because they've sacrificed so much. And, you know, once you examine it much closer, but, you know, from, a, from an outsider's point of view, what I saw is the beauty and, uh, you know, everything is so beautiful and everything is so precise. I mean, everything is looks like it's geared towards your inner peace and your outer pleasure, that kind of thing. But I, I just thought it was very interesting having just, you know, having seen this and my reaction versus his reaction. What was his reaction again? He said he wouldn't live there again. He said they've given it up. They've given they've sacrificed happiness. That's yeah, what he I said. I they, see. I mean, there's so many, and then he, you know, when he enumerated them and as our tour progressed, I saw what he meant. I mean, I understood more of what he meant, you know, the living conditions, the workspace, the authoritarianism with regard to the um, employer employee relationship, um, family life, you know, all of those things, you know, there was like that little bit of an edge that, mm -hmm. you know, came in and sucked out whatever, I, per I perceived as happiness that, that really wasn't there. So, I, I mean, when you're talking about happiness today, that's the first thing that popped into my head is that having just seen this other culture and thinking one thing and, and having the reality posed to me another way was very interesting. Right. So, right. I, I, I awesome. mean, Bentham would not have appreciated it. He would have liked my <laughs> point of view. <laughs> so. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, I mean, this is a great, this is a great point because happiness is such a loaded word and what makes one person happy and makes another is totally different often and certainly culturally um as as we look at different cultures um and ages and experiences um what makes one person happy versus another and how do we account for the subjectivity of that and yet bentham thought that as it as it looked at pain and pleasure just one dimension of happiness that those were kind of objective and measurable in some sense, um, you know, and so, um, yeah, so it, it, you know, here's, by the way, here's a quote I'm going to read by Toni Morrison. Maybe you've heard before. Um, and again, she may have a different notion of happiness than we do. She writes, uh, please don't settle for happiness. It's not good enough. Of course you deserve it. But if it's, if that's all you have in mind, happiness, I want to suggest to you that personal success devoid of meaningfulness, free of a steady commitment to social justice, that's more than a barren life. It's a trivial one. And so similar to what Aglaia is writing over there, this notion of what are we willing to give up? Yeah. And as what Cheryl's saying in Japan, when do, might we go too far right, uh, in giving certain things up? And yet, what are we willing to give up for the collective? Um, do I give up some personal happiness for collective happiness? And how do we balance that? What does it mean to be in a family um, or be around people who don't make us happy, but we think it's good to be in the relationship? These are these are complicated issues. Okay, Cheryl, thanks for raising that. Aglaia. Okay, so first of all, okay. Um, all right, I'm really sad about um, Rabbi Learner, so bear with me, please. Okay, but um, also the historian in me is, um, well, first of all, the historian in me is like, 
I'm the one who said, it's pretty obvious, I'm the one who said happiness is overrated. And it's because of the fact that, well, Jeremy Bentham is kind of correct. People do respond to this. And that's the bane of my, one of the banes of my existence as a historian. I have a job because of this. And that's kind of why I'm kind of like, okay, yeah. But the other thing, though, is that, yes, thank you, Sarah, exactly. That's where I was going to go. But the other thing, though, is that it depends on how... Um, I have something that is kind of sensitive and I don't know if it's going to trigger people if I say this. So I don't know if people want to hear the story about how I got pissed off at a room full of white people and then a room full of black people in the same week. It, you know, votes. Who wants to hear this story? Anybody? Okay, I have a couple of votes who are like, yeah, I want to hear this. Okay, so first off, okay, talking about how people, you know, making people feel better and what's the useful thing to do. Okay, so I'm sitting around... God help me. Okay, so I'm sitting around the room full. This is the room full of white people, okay? Now there's one other person of color in the room besides me. And they're all talking about how, we're talking about of all things, like, you know, how do we like handle cultural, multicultural things, you know, that kind of stuff. And they're all talking about, well, we don't have a whole lot of people of color, like applying for jobs to work with children of color, that kind of stuff. And how all of this stuff. So I finally, other person of color and I are sitting on this side of the room, not saying a word. And so finally, I decided I have to raise my hand and just jump into this because what they were talking about is recruit people of color to work with people, specifically to work with people of color. And I was like, I think you guys are overestimating what you're talking about. You don't understand the differences between, and, you know, like people of color, you know, like they're not all linked. They're not in some sort of board collective and everything. A plus to anyone who knows what I'm talking about, Borg Collective. But anyway, but the thing is, that, yay, Sarah. Okay. So then before I could get my point made, a couple of people jumped in and completely silenced me and said, oh, no, we've already thought about that. See, these are the steps that we're going to take. They're in the right direction and everything. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And they were talking about how they knew so much about it. They already understood that they were making the right move. But here's the thing that I was trying to explain to them, no, you're not making the right move. And I have personal experience for why this is not the right move. Academia, need I say more? Okay, all of the stuff that they've done, you know, to like people of color in academia. I was like, okay, but then people of color go to conferences and they're subjected to racial slurs by other PhDs. Come on, please. So then after that, though, I got, and I tried to interrupt them again and say, hold up, you don't have more experience than I do in this, trust me. And I got yelled at. And I got told that I'm the one who's actually not, I'm the one who's impeding diversity because I'm the one who's not actually willing to understand their experiences with this and they know more than I do. Now, also bear in mind, a lot of these people had no PhDs and a lot of these people were a lot younger than I was and everything. So it just, it degenerated from there. Then I go to another conference and there are a room full of black people there and they're trashing this man who was giving, you know, a talk about, well, he's, he was a person who's not an academic and he's talking to a bunch of academics and he was talking about his work on a project that explains lynching, the history of lynching in the United States. And he was going from a kind of um, mathematical, you know, like Silicon Valley kind of way, because he was a former Silicon Valley person who got interested in history. He just said, Silicon Valley sucks and I got to get out of here. And then, okay, so he was white appearing, but he was not, he was not a white man though, but he was white appearing and he's gay. And he's not an academic. And so what they were yelling, they, these women who were in this room, like the room full of black women, they were all saying he's not emotional enough. And then they started trashing him. And I said, wait a minute, I've done the historical research, a lot of historical research in here because they weren't 
academics in the history field. And I said, um, it's also a lot of emotional commitment to deal with history. That's why he was trying to go at it from this point of view, this very mathematical point of view though, because emotional history though, there's a lot of judgment on you for being emotional especially when you're in a room full of professors, he may as well have been me, okay? <laughs> like seriously, he may as well, you know, because they judge you if you're a woman and you start tearing up and everything. And so then they said, well, I'm sick. And one of them said, well, I'm sick and tired of these people talking about racial stuff and it doesn't even affect them. And I said, it affects us all. And I said, you're sitting there with coffee and a cell phone, okay? Do you know where your cell phone was made? It was made, in, you know, with minerals that fund genocidal regimes. It was made in a sweatshop. Come on, you know, your clothes are made in sweatshops and everything. Well, then they sat there. They all got silent very quickly. And then one of them just says to me, well, I think there are different degrees of, you know, accountability. And I was just like, oh my. So my, the, point that I'm making here is when it comes to the utilitarian aspect, how many how many ways in which, okay, just thinking of happiness, it makes people happy to believe that they're not as accountable as other people and that they already have a plan and that their plan is going to work. All of this stuff. So yeah, for me, when it comes to talking about what makes people happy, a lot of things are making people happy. They're not even aware. They think that they're doing something good, that they're doing something that's going to like actually improve things. When really they're just Jeremy Bentham, you know, all over again. I don't know. Like I, it's it's hard for me to like get it out though. But you see what I'm saying? Understand? Yeah, Galea, thank you for sharing those those stories and um uh and and seeing how this plays out in, yeah in in frustrating ways for yourself. Um, and yeah, how these same calculations of what he's talking about are still playing out in some of these messy areas today. I don't know if anybody wants to respond to that or move in a different direction. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot for us to think about. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Uh, me, me, I know a lot about various religious practices, but are we talking about if I walked into a Unitarian church is the same as what we're talking about here as utilitarianism? Oh, sorry. No. No. Okay. I just, I just uh, wanted to make sure yeah. my um, mind was thinking something else. So that's. I just wanted a clarification there. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, no, I don't have yeah, to be sorry. The <laughs> I just... the, uh, the uh, UUC church is um, a, um, a partner. Uh, uh, the uh, local ones, at least, you know, to to the work we do, and uh, and uh, yeah. Uh, let me just put it in the chat over here on the side. The Unitarian, um, and that's kind of like a a more progressive branch of Christianity today, theologically right. and politically. Um, whereas the utili utilitarian, did I spell right? You, no, not at all. Yeah, close. Well, I still with them. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, uh, different and and I think the ut unit Unitarians would not be Utilitarians. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I just, think I just there, need a definition there. Yeah. In okay. fact, I mean, I think I think that we largely politically still live in a world of ideology. Um, while philosophers, you know, claim many today to be post ideology, um, you know, which is close to impossible. Um, the politically people generally say, hey, I'm a liberal. And so I, I check the boxes of X, Y and Z. 
I'm a conservative. I check the box of A, Y, and Z. I'm a centrist. So I check the boxes of X, Y, and Z. Utilitarianism um, wouldn't, wouldn't fall out uh, um, with either political party. It would take each issue and, re and require kind of a process of discovery of the plane and, pl and pleasure involved. So Unitarians are certainly, you know, ideologically driven. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and utilitarianism in some ways um, is an attempt to go beyond that, you know, in some ways that could even be helpful for some of our political divides today to say, look, I understand ideologically that you're, I, I'm, 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 I'm torn on whether to give an example, uh, a political example right now or not. All right, you know, um, I mean, one of the hard parts is that it's impossible. I don't know if, it, you know, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer and you're wondering about the atomic bomb, you know, it's such a, one of the things that those who advocated for the, for the atomic bomb being dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, as atrocious as that, as that is, was they argued that this is going to lead to less death. They took a utilitarian approach that said this over a hundred thousand people who are being killed in this atrocious way, it's actually going to lead to death, less death in two ways. One is going to end this war and more, more than that number of people will die if it continues, which is a dubious claim, but let's just, uh, and secondly, um, that it's going to be an end to all war, which of course was false also, because once people just are holding nukes at each other, they're not going to want to fight with each other because of how much it can escalate. Nonetheless, there's other, so there's no way to assess that because that's history and a decision was made. But today, there are some ways to politically assess if a policy works. And it would be interesting experiment to engage a more uh, statistics rooted approach rather than an ideology-based approach on some of these issues. Anyway, Sarah, over, over to you. Good afternoon um, from where I'm sitting. So uh, two things struck me as we talked. Uh, we'll start with the intro, which was pain and pleasure. And I immediately went to Musar. And I thought, so if we're looking at any trait we're looking at pain on one end and pleasure conceivably on the other, if we're to use that, that way of thinking. Those extremes of experience as we delve into finding ourselves balanced in each and every trait. And that was the first thing that struck me was like pain and pleasure, that's it. Um, then it I immediately went to, as soon as we started talking about happiness, I went back to Buddha. And Buddha, while Buddha talked about suffering as our way of being in the world, and the fact that all of us suffer, when we get meta, um, the ultimate blessing, so to speak, one of the first phrases is, may all beings be happy. And it doesn't mean, oh boy, I get to get whatever that is. That's not happiness. So it, contextually, I'm still back at the question of what is happiness? And is it about that, that moment of joy? Or is it about that sense of peace and calm and being centered and being 
in touch with our essential being, which is perhaps, I would like to believe, connected to the infinite. And that all of us are interconnected in that way. And that, for me, is genuine happiness. So I'm complete. Great. Sarah, thanks so much. Um, a lot there. It, you know, thanks for bringing us back to the Buddha, which was our, was that our first or second session? Our second session. Um, good, good memory, Glea. And um, those are fascinating comments. And as human beings who are animals, but are also potentially more than animals, we know that we're meaning-making beings. And um, for example, loneliness, I mean, is a problem. Loneliness is a problem. But also there's people existentially who've been able to make meaning of loneliness in a way that brings them great happiness, that their loneliness actually adds depth to their life in a sense. And that's true for lots of things. You know, a, a loved one dying is a sad thing, but many people find it very meaningful to grieve, to connect, to mourn. And as beings of meaning, things that are losses can also be gains um, in so many ways. Um, and so um, if it was only pain and pleasure and not some kind of higher, you know, assessment, that would be missing a big part of this. On the other hand, um, you know, as we say in Musar as well, that, um, that, th that the physical needs of another are my spiritual needs, which is the way, say, that, that the primary way to be spiritually fulfilled is not through meditation and prayer, nothing against those things, but by addressing the physical needs of another human being. And so we care about their pain and pleasure as our own kind of spiritual assessment. Rabbi Yisro Salanter on the subjectivity of kind of pain and pleasure, the founder of Musar, said that when a child's toy breaks, we should view it as an adult, like our factory burned down, right? Which is to say, like, don't treat it as trivial. Oh, this girl's doll just broke. Oh, this boy's truck just broke or whatever, whatever it was. But view this as like in their world, this is like your whole business just got destroyed. And if we think of pain and pleasure like that, like, oh, yeah, your pain and pleasure is different than mine, but I take yours as seriously as, as mine. And so even if we're meaning making systems and we say pain and pleasure is a kind of a lower level of human experience, it, it, you know, if we were to say such a thing, um, we still don't dismiss it. We still account for it. We still care about people's physical well-being and health in addition to their, you know, um, their deeper secret seeking of meaning. Um, but again, a lot of this also touches on what kind of intervention do we want to make in the world? When we talk about healing the world, what is it we want? Do we want um, to cure disease? Do we want to alleviate suffering in the streets? Do we want people to sign on to an ideology or think differently? Right? People are selling very different approaches as to what it means to heal the world. And that's a good question for us. If we were to measure the success of the impact you want to have on the world, how would we measure that? Would it be based on reducing pain? Maybe if I'm a doctor, I would assess it that way, reducing pain. Or if I was working in preventative care, maybe I would assess it, you know, differently. If I was working on cures, I would assess it differently. Um, anyways, so thank you for that. And uh, so much more to discuss. Hi, Steve. Hi. I love Sarah's talk about happiness. Um, in, and this might be unfair, but in my small segment of my life, which is taking care of older than me folks, there is no happiness. It is managing 
unhappiness. It is just enduring. Uh, and I find that more and more, and maybe that, that, that's a bad example to bring up because it is such a small segment of, of our daily lives. And um, I was trying to think, I'm, I'm trying to recall the other thing that I wanted to bring up, like uh, this is totally unrelated. Morality. What What is morality? Is morality something determined by a religious relationship or is it something that we just know because of the society in which we live? Right. That's it. Yeah, Steve. Wow. OK, so that that second question is one we're dancing around this whole series, really, of like, why do we think what's moral is moral, even as we know that different cultures think of it differently? different time periods thought of it differently, how much of this is based on our own needs or our own upbringing versus kind of some assessment. Um, people who watch CNN all day have a very different sense of morality than people who watch Fox News all day, you know, and that's worth thinking about. Like, how does that happen that even in America, we're totally split on what's moral? There's some general consensus that, you know, um, it would be more moral to hold the door for a stranger than to slam it in their face you know, basic notions notions of interpersonal decency. But as we move from interpersonal decency to kind of collective policy, um, we're going to have massive disagreements about what matters. What also um, touching on, and of, on aging, Steve, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm sure we all know people who are in their 90s and are very, very happy. But Steve's assessment may also resonate for us that many people who are um, deep into the aging process are often very unhappy um, because they're isolated, because they have pain, because they don't have a hope for a future. They don't have ambition to kind of be involved in things. Their life is managed for them. Steve, maybe you want to add to that list. And for that, for, and in fact, this is one of the reasons that very controversially the utilitarians say. Let them all die. Let them all die, right? Be, um, because they say, look at healthcare costs in America. The amount we spend on end-of-life care for people who are miserable already is astronomical. And wouldn't that money go better to saving more lives of younger people? And so to people who think every life has infinite dignity, they would found this atrocious. Say, what do you mean? I don't care if the person's 95 and miserable. Their life doesn't matter any more than 10 children, right? Um, and a utilitarian would say, yeah, 10 children matters more than that person, um, objectively. And that person's miserable anyways. Um, so, yeah. So, Steve, so thanks for bringing that up. And um, um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's something for us all to think about. Um, okay. Gary Gartsman, Etiwata. Yes. Hi, 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 Cheryl. Then I see Aglaia, uh, unless somebody else jumps in who hasn't spoken yet. Yeah, Cheryl. I just wanted to comment from personal experience about what Steve just said. Um, uh, next week, I'm going back to Philadelphia to visit my 97-year-old dad who lives by himself. Um, my sister is, you know, 20 minutes away, but he lives independently. He lives by himself. And um, he, he always says, you know, when I ask how, how he is, he said, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. You know, and he tells me what he ate and, you know, he said, I, I'm playing, I'm playing the hand I was dealt. 
I, I, you know, whatever happens next happens next. You know, he's not, I mean, he's, 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 he kind of indicates that he's ready to die, but he doesn't want to be sick either. You know, I, I mean, so it's, it's interesting how, you know, what, what his definition of happiness is, you know, uh, he's eating well, he watches movies on TV, he follows the stock market. I mean, he does all these things, but um, I can't say that he's a happy person, you know, that, that kind of thing. He's looking forward to me coming because I only see him a few times a year. But um, so that's something, I mean, I told him about it, but he always forgets that I told him. And then he looks at his calendar. But I think, I, I think that all of these uh, places where elderly people are um, sent or cho choose to live. So a lot of them choose. My father has not chosen to live in one of those. Um, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a way to, it's, it's, what is it? God's waiting room or something like that. That's I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard that expression before, but I have to think in his own way, he, he's content, you know, he's content. He says, at least what he says is content. So I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I appreciate what Steve was saying, but, uh, you know, having, you know, living this with this personal experience, I just wanted to comment on that, that, you know, he's, you know, I, I wouldn't want somebody to go in and say, well, he's old, he's lived a, a long life and, you know, adios, you know, so. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Just before we go to, go to Gary, Gary Gartsman, I, uh, you know, I, I I'm, myself, I've had many different experiences with people in kind of uh, late late stages of, of aging. And um, I, uh, of course, there's many different experiences involved. I've met many people who are very resentful and cynical and angry um, that this is kind of where their life is at and others who find great meaning and joy in that stage of, of life. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, Cheryl's point, the story stands and Steve's experience stands. And, um, and one of the things to think about it for ourselves, of course, is do we want more quantity of life or more quality of life? When do we want to sign a DNR at some point? Uh, do not resuscitate, you know, if if we think we're going to have a low quality of life. And when when um, when my mother was close to passing just over a month ago, um, I knew she could have been much more present in her last stages. But I, I over-medicated her, her pain meds because my goal was not kind of quality of presence in the end, but but an absence of pain. And so she was not conscious at all in ways I would have liked her to be. Maybe even she would have liked to have been, but the pain would have been um, very high. And so that was the decision I made. And, I, and, and, um, and those are decisions we often have to make for loved ones. Do we want to resuscitate? Do we want to take a treatment? Do we want to keep going if the quality of life is going to be poor, but there's more life to have? And those are complicated with families too, because sometimes family members feel cheated. Someone says, I'm not, you're not going to take the treatment. Don't you love me? You know, well, the treatment's going to be very painful and, you know, and not going to give me a quality of life. Like, don't you love me <laughs> that you want to let, you know? And so these are complicated issues of how we engage with families and friends and how we choose, you know, um, how we choose to respond to these things. One last comment before we go to Gary Gartsman, which is, uh, is about children. We've been talking about aging, but let's think about children for a moment. What would it look like to educate and parent based upon pleasure uh, being primary? as opposed to um, it not being primary. Um, and as we're looking at aging, we might say, oh yeah, of course, you know, my 95 year old parent or friend, all I want for them is not to have pain, right? But is that all we want for our five-year-old? You know, um, 
I, I, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't send them to school, you know, um, if, if that was the goal, <laughs> I think they have a lot more suffering than pleasure in their school experience. They tell me, right. But we have an idea that we want to educate and parent young children in a way that's not always pleasurable, but because there's a higher goal that they're striving towards, um, I could give them lollipops all day and let them stay in front of their iPad. You know, that would give them tons of pleasure, right? But is that good for them? And that's the same for us. Like a lot of us do things that don't feel good in preventative, you know, preventative, uh, you know, healthcare and in other aspects of our lives. But we know it's um, maybe you're going to Yom Kippur. How many people are are like thrilled to go sit in Yom Kippur and like, you know, but maybe you are, I mean, you know, but maybe you're not, but you're like actually fasting is cleansing in some way that's that's valuable. We do things that don't feel good. Right. Okay. Gary Gartsman, over to you. Well, yeah, we've gone a lot of directions since <laughs> yes, uh, I, I started with talking about Cheryl's dad. I guess I keep thinking about the Rabbi Sachs's writing on the difference between happiness and joy. And mm -hmm. while a dad may not be happy in that particular moment, maybe He's taking joy in his adherence to categorical, categorical imperatives, such as dealing with what's in front of me one step at a time and facing that and behaving in, in a certain way. So that's, you know, some kind of a rabbinical comfort uh, to some. But I guess we, when you kept uh, mentioning dancing around, dancing around, it seems like our whole 40 philosopher series is dancing around. Why are these people spending this much time on this topic? On, on, is, on, on, on the on topic, topic of creating an alternative, almost like creating an alternative to religion. Ah, we ah. are all trying to come up with a system by which to live, uh, imperatives, uh, utilitarianism, all these uh, things. What is it that they, what motivated them? What, what wasn't good enough about the religion of the time or not thinking about it at all? Okay, wonderful, wonderful. I'm so glad you went in this direction. Um, so on your first point, yeah, the happiness versus joy is great. And the rabbis talk a lot about, you know, um, about distinguishing, uh, you know, with various, you know, Hebrew constructs around these different kinds of things. Um, you know, I mean, think about, think about the single mother who works three jobs to put her child through college and is not really enjoying that work right but then is sitting there at the college graduation of her daughter and that feeling she has in that moment and how that connects her life you know and all the different pieces of of uh, like the hard parts of our lives and how they're connected our our traumas and our glories in so many ways and um and yeah that's worth thinking about for ourselves too like what are just kind of the kind of the some of the lower level pleasures that you know again, we don't have to dismiss them but they're not central to our lives and what are those things that are so deep and central to us that give us a deep sense of, you know, of joy as well? So, yeah, so thank you for th thank you for sharing that. And I think that part of what he was getting to over there as well is that ethical living is what can ultimately bring us to the deepest, um, that deepest satisfaction. Um, and living ethically is far from an easy thing or a comfortable, pleasurable thing, um, but it can be so deeply rewarding. So to go to your point about the alternatives to religion, you're right. All these philosophers um, are are doing um, are 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 doing one of three things on, 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 in relationship to religion. They're either replacing religion, 
they're justifying religion or they're kind of enhancing. So some of the earlier ones we looked at said, my religion is all good and right. But now that philosophy is popular, I need to find some philosophical way to justify my why my religion is good and um, and, 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 and enhance that. Others are going to say, oh, my gosh, religion, this is horrible. And, and even if it's not horrible, people are throwing it out. And so we're going to need some other system. And then that middle group is saying like, okay, religion got some things right, some things wrong. Philosophies and ethics are going to enhance it and, um, and work with it in some way. And so that's going to happen for many reasons. It's going to happen for some, for some people because they don't think religion is true. It's going to happen for some people because they think even if religion is true, it's just not powerful enough to achieve our goals. It's going to happen for some because they think, you know, that religion is good, but it needs to be articulated in a more, you know, uh, nuanced or, or modern way. Um, and then it's going to happen for some because they think that the religion is fundamentally bad. Um, and so, but at the end of the day, some of the main points that religion was trying to say are held intact, but now we um, we have disagreements. So someone says, okay, the Torah or the Bible says, don't kill, don't steal. But now the modern person says, well, what does that mean? Don't kill. Can I go to war? Can I defend myself? Right? Do Can I pull the plug on someone in end-of-life care? What does that mean, don't kill? Don't steal. Well, what, what exactly does that mean? You know, because now there's um, a whole bunch of different ways of thinking about, you know, economics. Um, and according to some, taxation is stealing. According to others, taxation is just. And so what does that mean, don't steal? And so, um, and then don't kill, get into abortion. You know, pro-life folks say, well, don't kill. Obviously, you can't have abortions. And other people say, no, that's not a life, it's not killing. So even though we have these principles from religion, now everything is called into question. Um, and so, um, uh, and so a lot of these philosophers are trying to get us to, um, to ask harder questions than we, we may have. G Gary, you want to respond to that? No, I, I think that that's, that's helpful. I'd have to think about, uh, you, those three points of how philosophy interacts. I guess I'd like to see like how, uh, Kant or Bentham, how religious were they? I'd like to talk to them and go, what, what camp uh, do you fall into? Are you trying to replace religion and why it's just not good enough? Or, you know, religion's pretty good, but it doesn't speak to me in that particular way. Right. So if you can arrange a Zoom, that'd be fine. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. Yeah. Um, love that. And, you know, I think that um, one of the things we know that 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 religion seems capable of today that you know um it, i mean religion seems capable of many things today that other systems are not capable of for better and worse um but some of the good things we know that community is really dying fast in america and religion is one of the the last places to provide community um of course you can find micro community in many ways um but community that takes care of each other in a sense um, it's it, it's hard to always find that. And, um, second, I'm really sorry about this, but please don't underestimate the fact that these um, philosophers never intended for the masses to actually understand their works. 
that, yeah, that, that that's an interesting please point too. Okay, please go. I'm really yeah. sorry. In fact, that. some of the philosophers didn't want the masses to understand them. Um, you know, in particular, they really thought the masses are dumb. And there's a few people up top who are actually going to spend their lives thinking. Now, um, that's changed a lot for a lot of reasons. It used to be, you know, if everyone just worked in agriculture and few people were rich enough to spend their time thinking, or now people retire and they spend a lot of time thinking, right? Or there's longer periods of education, right? So, but by and large, these ideas were meant for a very small group. All right, friends, we're at our time. I need to say two things. Number one, our thinker next week is Hegel. Hegel is um, is just just a game changer. And secondly, I, I'm, I'm sorry if this messes you up, but next week uh, as an anomaly, we're going to meet on Monday at our normal time rather than Tuesday. So I'm sorry if that means you can't join us. The, the recording will be available if you want. Um, but we're going to meet next week at Monday instead of Tuesday, and then we'll get back to our um, our normal Tuesdays. In any case, thank you all so much for joining and for your wonderful insights. And I hope you'll continue to think today about what motivates you, how you think about pain and pleasure, how you think about consequences versus intentions, how that ought to in impact how we think about justice and how central should happiness be in our lives and what type of happiness. Have a beautiful day.